Hi, Linda. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Andrew. Glad to be here. Uh, so as we talked about a little bit in our um, our pre-recording discussion, uh, your work uh, related to the UFO topic has um, has captured my attention. Uh, I've seen you on Spaced Out Radio and Beyond Humanity sharing your story, uh, your experiences, and some of the research and some of the findings that you've come across in that research. Um, would you mind just giving me a quick recap of your life experiences and how that led you to become so interested in the topic of UFOs? Sure. Um, my family, we grew up on the subject. We had experiences. We were always watching for the, um, watching the skies during the summers in particular, but we had a lot of different experiences and my father had his own background and we, on um, one side of my family, this is like at least the fifth generation um, that we can count where we have had situations with UFOs or related topics. I've heard that in, in several different um, in several different instances. People that I've talked to have had multi multiple generations of uh, contact um, from sightings. I, I wouldn't call them simple sighting because more than just a light in the sky, you're, people are seeing craft um, all the way up to, you know, telepathic contact and abduction right. uh, scenarios. Uh, so you're, um, you know, and I'm going off of what I've heard you explain on previous shows. I don't want to go in too much detail with what you've already talked about because people can go back and I'm more than happy to point people in the direction of spaced out radio and beyond humanity. And I don't want you to have to, you know, reiterate everything that you've said, but okay. your experiences kind of span the whole spectrum of, of contact, right? Yes, they do. From lights in the sky to does it include the telepathic or the psychic phenomena yes. that's associated yes. with this? Okay. Yes, it does. I, I haven't heard you talk too much about the, the psychic or the telepathic mm -hmm. uh, element of your experiences. Would you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, that is, I would be considered a contactee as well. Um, once you get past... I guess you would say the simple abduction, you know, all of that. If you, you know, your experiencer, um, an abduction goes hand in hand with that. But then when you start receiving information with downloads or whatever, then that would be a contactee. And so um, I have had that um, tell and this runs in my family. I mean, my grandmother was just amazing, the stuff that she knew. 
you know, and you couldn't hide anything from her. And my son always said that about me. You know, he gets so mad because he'd go out and do whatever and I would know what he was doing. And so, um, but yes, and so I get the downloads too. And so it's just all kind of, you grow up in it and then it's kind of natural. And then you realize other people don't have the same thing. You know, they might have small parts of it, but I mean, it's real intense in my family. Can you give me one uh, example of that? Something that really stands out where you've had um, and and a, I don't know if you want to use the term psychic, but a, a, a an impression that you know wasn't just a thought. Oh, I've had so many of them. Um, a lot of them to do with my son who is now 42. And so growing up, you know, I would have these impressions. Um, one time he went on a trip with a youth group and I just, I was at work and I just had the impression that he was going to drown and I just went into the other office and started praying and everything and then um, when the group got back one of the mothers got off the bus and said I need to talk to you and she proceeded to tell me and it was the same day the same time and she said I saved him from drowning um yeah and so he's had many accidents that way, um, the same type of thing. And so, um, you know, um, one time in San Antonio, I got the impression while I was in bed that I needed to pray for him because he was having an accident. And just as soon as I was like on my knees and praying, the fire department called me and said, your son was just in an accident. Well, the thing was, he's the only person who has had an accident there and lived. And that's what the fire department told me when I got at the scene. He had, his car had front totaled an old oak tree. And the fireman says, we come all the time for accidents here, and we've never had anybody live before. Wow. So, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, you have to forgive me. Sometimes I will have a question that comes to mind while you're talking. I don't like right. to interrupt the, the guests from what, what they're talking about. So I just forgot my question. Um <laughs> It was related to, oh, do you think that these are uh, psychic abilities separate from your experiences with the, the UFOs or, or do you have the psychic abilities because of your experiences with UFOs? I think it's all blended in. Um, and just like so many of us, you know, whether they're completely separate or not 
so many of us at times have difficulty separating the angelic realm from the um i call them the others just as a group lump term for all of it um because there are times where it is there seem to be the same and so um you know all of this just kind of intertwines together um you know and it's not all good there is bad to it but there seems to be that part of it and so um you know with my son again he he had another accident a, a really bad one he was revived three times um a motorcycle accident but um he was in la and you know i'm here on the east coast i get a call from someone that's saying they're a bus driver for the la and that they just witnessed um my son having this major motorcycle accident and is telling me and you know just before the person gets off the phone i'm like well, where are they taking him? And I found out the fireman got on the phone and, and told me where they were taking him. Well, then later on, I tried to contact LA bus um, to let them know, you know, that I wanted to thank the driver. And they're like, no, we don't have a driver that goes to that location. And I said, well, can you ask? And, you know, so they put this sign up on their bulletin board to see if anybody knew anything about it. And nobody did. They contacted me later and said, we can't find anybody that did that. Or, you know, we would have liked to award them something too. So, I mean, it's so many, so many things that, you know, aren't coincidences. I agree. I, I do uh, see that this trend more more often as I talk to more and more people um, who've had experiences like this, that this is way more than a simple coincidence. There's mm -hmm. something more at work uh, and it's just so interesting. Um, and I, again, I'm starting to develop some hypotheses of, about some of this stuff, but it I really have to collect a lot more data before I can, before I can come to any conclusions. Uh, and I'm not even a scientist, you know, I'm just a curious guy, but uh, the, the evidence, though anecdotal at this point is really compelling, really interesting. Um, why do you think that some people are targeted as you know, contactees and abductees, if you have a, any kind of a hypothesis or idea. I just think in our case, it runs on both sides of our family. Um, it's not just one side, it's both sides. And like I said, it was just natural growing up. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, you know, you can, not everybody is 
so much a contactee. You know, they may interconnect with you, but that doesn't mean that they're going to. And I think part of it may be just people aren't receptive to really, you know, it's, it's more than a gut feeling. You know, it's something that is very active and alert and, um, you know, sometimes there's downloads with information that I don't understand until much later. Um, but a lot of it is active, you know, immediately information. Can you give me an example of that, that uh, like a really strong uh, in instance where you, you got this download and there was no question in your mind that what you had learned prior to the event or the information coming to you, that it was absolutely a, a like a premonition or precognitive experience. Yeah, I get a lot of that. Um, I particularly get that with equipment and cars. Um, but one thing I, I will mention is that when my my son and his wife, they have like a miracle child. Neither one was supposed to be able to have a baby, especially after his accident. And so when she was, when his wife was, you know, just about time to deliver, it wasn't quite time. And I asked to see the ultrasound. And so they showed me the ultrasound and I said, you need to get the baby out as soon as possible. And of course, I was trying not to scare them, but at the same time, I knew. And when I saw the ultrasound, it was confirmed to me. And so, you know, he was like, well, it's okay. Well, they ended up going to the doctor and put her in the hospital and she had the cord uh, wrapped around her neck really tight. And so, you know, they said that they could have lost her because it was, you know, as tight as it was. So um, I, I have that kind of thing, but then I've always had this thing with equipment and cars that I can take a car into a shop and tell the mechanic what's wrong with it. And of course, you know, I'm a woman and I don't know anything. And so I get all the rigmarole. And then, you know, when it's time to tell me what's wrong with it, they're sheepish about it. And it's like, yeah, you know, that's what was wrong. And I, years ago, my first husband, you know, I kept telling him that my car needed the U-joint replaced. And he'd go, well, how do you know it's a U-joint? And it's like, I hear, you know, it's like an inner hearing. And I said, because I heard that it's the U-joint. Well, you know, like a week later, he comes walking in the door all hot and sweaty. And I asked him what was wrong. And he says, well, I had to walk about a mile because the car 
brought down and I said, okay, so what's wrong with it? He says it was the U joint. So we've had that over and over. And I know one of my cars, as soon as I got it, you know, like day two, I noticed an issue. And, you know, like I said, I just know what it is. So I told the shop and of course it was very clearly communicated to me that I did not have no, you know, it's like I've been driving, you know, almost 50 years, but I didn't know how to do it right. And so, you know, went on and on. Well, then a length of time later, the manufacturer recalled it for that exact same purpose. So when I went in to get the recall, you know, taken care of, and I reminded them, you know, remember this? And of course, you know, they always act very, you know, they don't want to hear it, obviously. So I've done that all my life. And there's times with my husband, you know, he works on very expensive x-ray equipment and everything. And they'll be having a problem and he'll be telling his co-worker on the phone, you know, the problem with the thing, what it's doing. And he'll hang up and I'll go, it's this. Wow. And of course, you know, so yeah. So it's that kind of stuff. Um, one time we were in a Home Depot and I said, well, what is that? And he is that's a pan for the washing machine you put underneath it. And I said, we need one. And he says, when you mean we need one, you didn't even know what it was. I said, you need it. Well, the next day the washing machine flooded and he didn't get one. So it went everywhere. Hmm. But, um, so yeah, that kind of stuff I've just always have done. Uh, so in, in, um, my discussions with other people who have had experiences similar to, to yours, uh, occasionally some of them have, uh, described an experience where they're seeing, uh, disasters like the end of the world scenario. Have you ever had anything like that? Yeah, and also um, I was predicted an earthquake in Chile. Gosh, this is going back to like, I don't know. It was around maybe 1994 to 97. At the time I was being mentored for these abilities you know, cause somebody wanted to test me. So when I got something, I would write it down, put it in the envelope, sign the envelope with the date and give it to them. Okay. So then the Chile earthquake did happen. And it was, you know, within the same month that I said that it was gonna happen, the date that I had specified. And so, um, a lot of those type of things. Um, I, we knew, I say we, 
um, I knew in 2001 that something horrible was going to happen and it was going to be terrorist. However, my impression was it was going to be Detroit. There's, and there was a reason, you know, later I realized what the connection was, you know, and so there was a large um, percentage of Middle Eastern people, and I believe even Iraqi people that were living in Detroit at the time. So I was picking up the messages, but it was crossed with, and who knows, there might be some kind of connection with Detroit that was never revealed, you know, as far as the plot or plan itself, but those type of things. And so, then, so were you talking about 9-11? Yeah. You, you had some kind of a, a premonition yeah. uh, about that um, whole incident? Right. Okay. So, you know, when it happened, obviously I was in shock, but at the same time I was thinking, you know, I knew that I had been thinking Detroit, but, you know, so you can't hear everything right or your, your left brain gets in the way. Right. So, you know, that's the same with, you know, any kind of, perception or remote viewing or anything like that you have to yeah. I, I i did want to ask you about remote viewing because that's an area another area of very intense interest as a matter of fact later today i'm going to be talking with a, a remote viewer um is that something that you have tried to do or have you trained in remote viewing just a little bit. And like I said, the person that I was mentoring with in the 1990s, um, that was a little bit of what we were doing and as well as confirming this other stuff. Mm -hmm. I belong to the Remote Viewing Association and- IRBA, you know, IRBA? Yeah. Okay. And so, and I've studied the things it is very close to what I already do as far as the results. So, um, and the group has discussions a lot about, you know, people who are psychic or mediums or whatever, and how valid is that compared to remote viewing. And of course, they're kind of different as far as the format and the intent, but some of the discussions gets around with, well, the results are really what counts. So <laughs> it's, all of it just bleeds together. Uh, yeah, I, I do agree. Do you find that the, the accuracy is improved with controlled remote viewing or is it better, is the accuracy better if you just let the natural ability um, present itself? For me personally, it's the natural ability. So I think um, if I were to strictly, and I, <laughs> I have tried it this way, um, 
especially with downloads, as far as the way that it is done. Um, and that works, but at the same time, it would take retraining what I'm already doing. And then I have a little bit concerned about if that's gonna mess up my other receptivity. Yeah, I totally get that, yeah. I mean, you're already getting the information coming to you. If you start trying to put controls into place to focus that information, that could possibly disrupt the flow of information. Right. I, I, yeah, I totally get where you're coming from with that. Um, and it seems like, uh, remote viewing does seem to be linked to psychic abilities. Um, though a lot of remote viewers kind of deny that. I, I, have you had that same, um, you know, the thought that like remote viewers don't want to say that it's a psychic ability? That's one of the ongoing discussions that I have seen in the group about that. And like I said, it's split you know, as far as what people think. Um, when my first husband, he was in army intelligence and when they were just starting to get into remote viewing, you know, he knew my abilities and he said, you know, you should have gone in the army like I wanted. Of course, by the time I dealt with all of that, I was pregnant and not gonna go in the army. But he says, you should have gone in the army because then you could apply for being a remote viewer. Ingo Swan was not in the army. He was a right. I guess, subcontractor, was. but. Right. Yeah. I guess they wanted all of their uh, operators to be enlisted so they could keep them under the, uh, the NDA. The army did, yes. Yeah. The, um, Stanford SRI, they did it under a CIA contract. Oh, okay. That's right. That's all really interesting stuff to me. And um, for you, so you've had contact, um, you've had the psychic abilities your whole life. You've worked with government contractors but now that you're uh, separated from the, um, the contract uh, world, you, you have a uh, fascination with uncovering what those contractors are doing with, uh, within the realm of the UFO topic. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Just kind of a broad mm -hmm. spectrum. Right. Um... I research different things. Um, I've researched uh, UFO crash history and written a report on that. Um, I got interested in um, determining the locations or who has the UFO wreckage from different crashes. And I started back with um, Roswell and I started tracking it through the CIA and FBI papers. And I knew the background with 
ETNG and I knew what the, um, you know, what Bob Lazar and others had said also. And so, of course, I thought, okay, well, it's ETNG. Well, I started going through, you know, all the tracking with that. And then I got to the point where it was EGNG and Battelle. And I was tracking those. And I really knew nothing about Battelle at all at that point. And so then it took a detour to where Battelle was the one that was showing up on the documents and EGNG wasn't. So then I thought, okay, well, I can always go back the EG&G route, but I'm going to follow the Patel route and see what it takes me. Okay, so then that's when I realized that they were really deep into all of it, all the related research. Um, they were connected with Project Blue Book. And, you know, it was a lot of stuff that they were doing specifically um, and with the metals to do with um, coming up, trying to come up with the metals after Roswell. So, you know, that turned out to have a huge number of rabbit holes with Patel. But yeah, so that's how I did it. And along the way, I have to immerse myself in military history and all these scientists and you know it's a huge amount of research involved in it it's not just you know tracking this one thing to this next thing there's a whole lot more involved as i mentioned in our uh, pre-recording discussion the podcast i started the podcast out as a cold war uh exploration looking into events of the cold war and i feel like there's a strong connection between all of that which you're talking about the military history the government contractors the ufo topic and the cold war as a whole that just seems to me to be like so many areas are linked um and it makes your work even that much more interesting to me because you've studied that stuff from the perspective that I'm trying to look into it. Um, have you found any compelling evidence that there is, now th this is a, a conspiracy theory and I don't wanna put you in an awkward position, but this, this theory keeps popping up and it, it's like, okay, have you found any evidence? Because you've studied this stuff pretty in depth. I mean, as, as much as anybody, and probably more than most, <clears throat> that either the US government or governments of the world are planning on perpetrating some kind of alien invasion false flag. Have you even heard that theory? Yeah. I know, and I know it goes back supposedly to um, Von Braun and what he told his assistant. Um, so I don't know how much stock I put into that particularly. Um, I think 
I think there's so much going on behind the scenes that I think a lot of us know and probably believe, but to verbalize it, you know, people just think it's really off the deep end. Um, I do believe that it's going to be the others revealing themselves. And I don't think the government's gonna have control over it. I think, you know, it's, it's gonna be a point where the government can't stop it at whatever point. So the, um, in respect to that uh, idea or that thought right there, the, the latest iteration of this theory, this conspiracy theory that I've heard is that the reason the government is planning on perpetrating this false flag is to um, to I'm trying to think of the right word mobilize the um, the population of the world or galvanize the population of the world to the governments of this world so that when the aliens do reveal themselves or the others reveal themselves that the the false flag has already occurred it seems to the population that the alien invasion is underway and when the aliens do come down to uh, reveal themselves they will be rejected by the majority of the population that's have, have you possible. heard anything like that yeah i think if there's a, I think if there's a worldwide false flag involving it, then that's going to be for the one world government that has been predicted for, you know, a long, long time, um, you know, to unite. Of course, the issue I have with that is I don't think any leaders are going to give up their role you know you've got all these power hungry leaders they're not going to just you know back off and let one person handle everything we're getting dangerously close to talking about the political realm and i really like yeah. to steer away from that so we don't right. have to get into that um the uh the the idea of a global one world government is pretty scary to me and I hope it doesn't come to that. The The only reason why I brought up that conspiracy theory, this is not a podcast about conspiracies, mm -hmm. uh, but the only reason I brought up that is ha have you in your research come across any evidence to support that kind of a theory that there may be some kind of a uh, a false flag plan that's underway not a plan i can see all the technology and everything that's available to have something like that occur mm. but i haven't gotten that as a plan okay 
so it, would, in your estimation, do you think that the, the reason that these contractors and the government are pursuing this technology, is it more for good or is it more for uh, being able to um, create better war machines? I think it's always better war machines. You know, um, they have stuff now that they can use more widespread for good if they chose to. So I think, I think all the talk people do about free energy and everything, well, nothing's ever going to be free. We know that. Um, but there's things that have been available for decades that they're not doing. So I don't see, I think that's just being used. So your, your research started um, because of your experiences. And I, I, uh, I think that the, the reason why you started to research these I think you said it in, in one of your interviews with Dave, was to, uh, to gather evidence uh, to, to basically show people that are not uh, believe, that are non-believers in this and um, bring up more awareness around the world by showing this evidence. Is that correct? That's part of it for sure. Um, the more information you get into, the more you see what's been going on and you see what the reality of it is. Um, I know that it's helped several members of our family to take things more seriously. Um, it's something that it just helps to to know this is real, you know, regardless of what the government says or whatever, um, yes, it would be wonderful for them to come out and be truthful about it all. Um, I don't know that they're gonna ever do that. You know, they've had over 70 years of lies about it, so. It's not like they're in a rush to clear the air. Um, so yeah. So it's a, it's a, a, partly a personal journey for you to uh, get confirmation that what you're seeing and experiencing is real, but also to bring forward this evidence to let other people know that, yeah, it is real. We're not crazy. We're not making this stuff up. The government is even interested in these things. Uh, even though they they don't admit it, open uh, openly admit it. Uh, hats off to you for doing that. And um, my question is, what would compel you to stop doing this research? What event or or series of events would have to happen for you to completely stop doing this research? I don't think I would stop doing it. Um, I've talked, there's a, 
small group of us that do some of the more dangerous work um, with what we study and um, we've gotten some warnings and things like that. Um, but, you know, even if I told people I wasn't going to research whatever anymore, you know, I'd still do it. It's something I can't stop. And so, um, you know, gone through a lot with this and doing it. Um, so, you know, and someone told me a couple of weeks ago, says, you know, you put a whole lot more out there on the topic than I would do, but I think you're safer because you do. You know, everybody knows what you're working on. So, you know. Good point. I was thinking more along the lines, less of the, the threatening aspect of it, but more, more along the lines of, you know, if the government did come out and say, here's everything we've got and everything we've been studying all these decades, 100% transparency, you know, it, here it is. Um, or, or if, you know, the day comes when the others do come to public, you know, public awareness and openly admit that they've been here and they're the reasons why we have had all of these weird experiences. People have been abducted and this is why, but basically all the answers to your questions are, are laid out on the table for you. Um, either in a over fashion like that or somebody from the, the covert or intelligence community comes to you and says, look, we'll give you all your answers. Just stop what you're doing, stop making it public. Either one of those two scenarios, would that make you decide to, to quit? Probably not quit completely. Um, there's, there's some things that I'm getting out of this that I wanna see done that's only part of this. You know, there's other rabbit holes that I have found that are issues that relate to it, but in other ways. And so I would like to see some of that handled as well. It sounds like an interesting journey that you're on. I, I would love to learn more about that. Um, but only tell me what you're comfortable with. And uh, you mentioned that there are some of the research that you do gets into a realm that could be potentially dangerous. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? It's just having to do with the specific um, company involved in different things related to that. Um, and so that has been an issue for some other researchers as to why they're not researching it anymore, why they stopped. Um, but I don't plan on stopping, so. 
what what makes it dangerous? Are you are is it just the the fact that you have been threatened, or uh, is it that you've uncovered stuff that's so sensitive that it could be uh, potentially threatening to national security? Or what makes it dangerous? It's in several areas. Um, as far as personally and um, property, um, computers, different things like that. Um, I've been dealing with something that I haven't spoken about, you know, that I'm still dealing with on so um, I just something to be aware of. I, I ask because there are other researchers that are um, taking a similar path to what you're taking. Is there is there certain areas that you could warn them off of uh, or point them in that direction to go deeper into? Um, there's three or four of us that kind of work behind the scenes on the issue. Um, a couple of, of them are backing off um, for the same concerns, um, things that they have noticed or wanted to get my input on, you know, they weren't so sure that it was a good to keep pressing in. Um, so I know at least one of them has changed what he's working on. Um, so, and I had another researcher who was re researching this some time ago and told me that um, he came in one day, turned on his computer at the switch, didn't count, turn on, and he had the tower sitting behind the painting. So he moved the painting and the tower was gone. And he said, you know, nothing else in the house was touched. It was only that. They didn't take the whole computer. They just took the tower. You know, so it's things like that that, you know, you get warnings about. Okay. Uh, so since you, you talked about quite a bit of what you dig into and some of the findings that you've found. Um, sometimes I say things that make me laugh. The findings you've found. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, okay. You, you, on on spaced out radio, you mentioned that your your path has kind of led you to some papers that lead led you to DARPA. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about what you found by looking into those papers? Yeah, I still need to analyze um, most of them. <laughs> the print on them is so small; um, it's like 
data sheets and it's just crammed full of like legal sized pieces of paper with this teeny print. And so, but it has the different contracts, contract numbers, um, the years, the contract amount, different things like that. And so I found several years worth of the records. So, um, and a lot of these records are places that um, they're in archives, reading rooms they're called with the government, but they're places that you would never ever think to look. And so sometimes I just stumble into these reading rooms to find all these documents. So I have those and I have um, a bunch of DOE, Department of Energy documents, which almost everybody who's researching for the, um, the craft that has crashed and the parts all believe that it's under DOE. Um, and mostly because of the FOIA rules and everything that they have are stricter or a lot of this stuff's not available. So, you know, you stumble into these reading archives and you just kind of go great crazy grabbing everything you can. Because <laughs> sometimes the records disappear, you know, sometimes they move them. And so, you know, that's an issue. Are you keeping hard copies of all these documents or do you just keep digital copies? I keep digital copies and I have several backups. Um, I, I don't have space in my house to put all the, you know, Fair I enough. have enough yeah. problems as it is. <laughs> I, I get that. Um, so the, the, uh, when you mentioned the Department of Energy, the first person, and because I've not been doing this for a long time, but the first person that I heard mention the Department of Energy as a place where this, a lot of this information could be is Tim McMillan. Uh, are you familiar with his work? He works yes. here. He's him and a couple other guys started up the debrief. Right. Uh, now, do you publish any of your findings in papers or do you, are you more interested in feeding information to outlets like Tim McMillan and other uh, quote unquote journalists to publish I the have, information on, uh, um, for you? I published the um, report I did on Cape Girardeau. And um, so I published that report. I don't, and I've been asked to republish it with another um, company. And so that is going to take some time. I mean, that took months and months and months. It took time away from my other research to do that. Um, I pass, I get a lot of tips and um, information. And so I will, if it's something that I know I'm not the person to dig into that or um, 
I'm already got a deadline that I have and I just don't have time to deal with that at the time, I will pass it on to somebody else. And I have done that with Tim. So, you know, what he does with it or whatever, it's, you know, up to him. But on some of the military um, specific areas, you know, like ONI and different agencies like that, he has more experience dealing with them. Yeah, he's a he's a relentless researcher. And right. he's a good writer, too. Uh, I really enjoy reading his work. And uh, he says he's not a UFO writer. <laughs> right. Um, but he certainly, uh, I guess he he walks that uh, that ledge of being a military researcher and being a UFO researcher because I guess they're so closely related. Yeah, I didn't know that I was going to be taking a deep dive into military records and history and everything when I got into doing this more. And then it was like, you know, just on the Cape Dorado, I had to do a lot of military digging for the history. Uh, I'm not familiar with that incident or that, uh, the, the document. I haven't read that yet, uh, but I, I do plan on reading that before uh, or after you and I talk sometime today or, or tomorrow. I'm going to read it. Um, and we're almost at an hour uh, do you mind if we go a little bit over an hour? No, that's fine. Okay. Um, so can you just give a quick recap of what the Cape Girardeau uh, incident is? Okay. Um, there was alleged um, crash in Cape Girardeau in 1941. And so, you know, the significance of that would be that it was you know, before the Roswell incident. And so that could have led to a lot of things that had to do with Roswell and it could have been a very significant crash. Uh, so my um, thing was, I was gonna go back and go through the records that are available. There's so many books written on it and I want it to substantiate the claims because a lot of it to me read as speculation. Yet at the same time, I wanted it to be an authentic crash and to see, you know, what was coming out of it because I did think it was significant. Well, the more I got into it, the more issues I found and so while the crash may have taken place um, and it didn't necessarily take place in 1941, but a lot of the information is not accurate. You know, I checked dates, I checked birthdays, I checked when people went to work at certain places and things that were significant to the storyline. And so then 
you know, I came to the point of realizing that some of the very well-known researchers um, weren't accurate in the information, you know, and part of that probably was because they were relying on what somebody told them. Some of the records um, weren't accurate, you know, for instance, this is another big thing you'll have to get into with somebody, I'll give you a name, but on the MJ 12 records, the magic, all of that, that is such a hot issue because you have all these people saying they're real and then you have all these people saying they're not real. Okay, and I think it's probably a mixture when you get down to it because it would be too, too convoluted to say everything was false and to have it go anywhere near together. Um, but some of the information on those records was relied on for the re story behind the Cape Dorado. So that was another factor that brought some of it. But then I ended up talking to someone who is the only person I know that's still alive um, from that time period in Cape Girardeau and was connected to one of the people. And so his indication to me was that it did not take place in 1941, but he told me when it did take place. So that's a big open question mark, you know, that's going to take a lot more research to go for that. So you do plan on doing a follow-up on that on that event? Is, is that what I'm Well, I'm supposed to republish my report in another publisher. And as far as digging deeper on this, it would really need somebody who is there that can put in the legwork as well as the local um, archives and things like that. There are some people that have been quote local, but they didn't have the research skills to really dig down into the information to make it stick. So I don't expect everything to fall in place necessarily on old cases, but when it's a number one detail of a story it needs to be accurate definitely yeah totally agree with you um so one real quick question back on the darpa papers um you said that they uh, there's there's been connections to a lot of different companies a lot of different even countries um have you well, I, and you said you still have a lot of looking into um, to find out really what's going on with DARPA, but ha has there been any, like they've, they come out with some of the craziest technology. <laughs> have you found anything that leads you to, um, that, that confirm that they actually have access to alien technology or crashed 
uh, UFOs? I wouldn't say that it would be with them. It would, I mean, some of the studies kind of, for instance, with the ASAP studies, ATIP studies, I'm combining the words, ASAP and ATIP. Uh, right. It's a new word. Um, <laughs> in connection with that, obviously, um, how put off in his um, company put out requests for papers and those specific ones had to do with the whole um, space time you know there were wormholes and space time metrics and all kinds of things that the reports were on in submitted for so those were all things that you can connect to you know that theme and so sometimes you can look at stuff and think well that's probably related but then you have all these other things that could also be related to so you know for instance the memory metals um some of those have gone on to be useful in the medical field you know one of them in particular is now used in like heart stents and so it's like all the stuff developed for nasa you know they had applications in other areas in our daily lives mm -hmm. and so you know it all goes together um it, it's fortunate that we do get access to that technology at some point but what's frustrating i'm sure that many people feel this way why do we have to wait so long to get access to this technology and why is it you know so stingily distributed for profit you know oh. that's that's what's frustrating to me right i mean it has to do with the government controlling some of the patents i mean they get first look at the plat patents to whether to issue them or not um but then yeah the commercial contractors that contract with the company, you know, with the government as companies, they end up with the work, you know. So, and we don't, I don't think we ever, that's the problem with the SAPs, um, the special projects. We don't know what they are specifically working on. I kind of think the government doesn't either. You know, when you have all these different projects spread between all the branches, they could have the same thing being worked on and all the money spent how many times over right. on the same project. So, yeah, they, they do have an agenda, no doubt about it. Um, they present it as for the greater good, but whether that's the case or not, we don't really know. Mm -hmm. um, what, uh, okay, how long have you been doing the research and what qualifications do you bring to the table that makes you a good researcher? Um, I was a paralegal for decades 
And of course, one of the major things that paralegals do is research and writing. So um, that is something that's just built in me. And with these particular projects, especially, I, you know, I have paralegal background in different fields, but corporate is one of them. So I know how to dig into the corporate papers online and not just that through the S, the um, Edgar SCC searches. And so I have found a lot of good information that way in some shell companies and you know, digging into the federal government's contracting reports. I have found shell companies that way. Um, so there's a lot of things that maybe some researchers wouldn't know how to utilize, but, you know, I put it to use and I have access to a lot of databases. So I, and some of so many that I have to sometimes stop myself to say, have you looked in those databases yet? Because I've looked in all these other databases. So, um, yeah. Do you make any of this information that you uncover public available to the public uh, through any outlet? There's a couple of outlets that come to mind off the top of my head, and that is uapresearch.com and the black vault those would be excellent outlets for you to distribute some of these documents that you've uncovered have you done that or, or even talked with those guys um re uap research may be the one that's requested my report um i know it was reviewed by them and they sent me some um, standards. I don't think I had to change much of anything, but I needed to submit it fresh to them. Um, John Green, well, it's, I think that's pretty much just him doing his own voyage and research for himself. Yeah. I, I think you're right about that. And he does that to, um, to maintain the uh, chain of custody. He, right. he, he knows absolutely where these documents came from and how they got to that that location. So uh, right. if it goes through a third party, he would have to somehow go through a vetting process with you. And I don't know if he has the time or the inclination to do something like that. I, um, I use Dropbox and I have some people who share their Dropboxes and then I give um, you know, rights to some of my files, you know, like I know somebody who's into, you know, the quantum physics. So I share, you know, a folder that I have on that. And, you know, I have people that share like scientists with me and because they know what I'm researching. And, you know, we go back and forth. And so if I find a scientist, that I don't think they've heard of before, I'll send it to them or so, you know, we work back and forth. So if we agree to 
make this conversation public. Um, is there anything that you would like to share with the listeners? A particular message that you would like to give to the listeners to help them in their own journey, whether they're a budding researcher or somebody who's been in the field for years or possibly a contactee or an abductee that is dealing with the, the issues that come along with that or just somebody like me who is just absolutely curious about this topic. And I'm, I'm always looking to, to look around the next corner, learn the new, the next tidbit of information to help me continue on my journey. So you, you got three different uh, <laughs> demographics there to talk to, uh, probably even to more, the, right? <laughs> and we never went to the Cold War. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that's my so, bad, but I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I would say um, keep everything you find out in a gray basket and don't throw it away, um, you know, and I would say if you're like an experiencer or abductee, that type of thing that you would um, start to just you know, even if it's on a passworded file on your computer or something, just, just start writing down some memories of whatever, but also, you know, the coincidences and things like that, um, their urges or, you know, the things that could have been predictions, whatever, um, just to start looking at that because Doing that helps you to see patterns. And, you know, it's like every once in a while, my husband will say, remember when that happened? And, you know, and it was something that he had just totally blown off to something else, but then it dawned on him that that, you know, that that meant something. And so um, I would just say, pay attention you don't have to be obsessed, but just, you know, make note of it. And, you know, even things with young children, because young children are very, very alert. They haven't learned what's supposed to be real and what's not supposed to be real yet. So they have um, a lot more openness to what's going on than, you know, everybody else does. So research, um, I would just say, constantly be updating what you're doing. You know, there are so many different databases and information banks now that you can look up information. I mean, I don't rely on Wikipedia or whatever. I mean, that's a good quick lookup, but that's not what you're going to use as a fact. You know, you need to go much further than that. And just because somebody that you think is reliable gives you information, whether it's on the radio or anything else, you 
you need to look it up because I learned the hard way on the Cape Dorado. You know, I trusted something and it ended up being false. So, and a lot of this is people that are highly looked at. And so you can't say anything, you know, about that without being taken as a bad person. And I knew, you know, it was like, am I gonna do this, you know? And so then you have to find a way to make the report without the personal conflict in it, you know, just give the facts. So I, I may have asked you this already, but I can't remember if I did. Um, since your last interview with Dave Scott until now, oh, actually I did. I asked you about the DARPA papers, but um, your, your contactee experiences, have you had anything transpire since then that you would we like to talk about? Some of the things that we happen have um, are in the house. And so there's different things that happen in our house. Um, we also live on uh, Civil War battlefields and it was probably revolutionary before that. So there's a lot of weird stuff that happens here. Um, we'll occasionally smell cherry pipe smoke. Um, one morning we were just getting out of bed and in the basement we could hear fife music. <laughs> and it I was don't know like what that is. What is that? You know, the really thin pipe. Oh, okay. Like and so yeah, and we were like, you know, we don't have any of that. You know, there is nothing in the basement to make that noise. Um we see a lot of shadows. Um, we, we've had so many stories about this house. It's just incredible. So it just uh, sounds like you, you're going through an, a continuous, strange, uh, unusual experience. Yeah. And, and regardless of where you live, but if right. you, in, in certain areas where the energy or the the history of that location may be a lot more pronounced right uh, you you tap into that because of your yeah your sensitivity that's and our cats you know they tune into it sometimes they'll tune into it before we do you know you'll see them staring at something or you know, that kind of thing. And one of my cats, the one that was in my lap earlier, she cannot, she hates anything with huge eyes. And so that's like a real tip off to us. But if she sees something on TV with big eyes, I mean, she, I've never seen an animal that will run so fast as she does and she'll tremble. You know, you have to go up and comfort her and stuff. And so um, it's definitely stuff going on here. I, I had a past guest uh, named Linda Zimmerman. She's a scientist and she, you, you familiar with her work? I've heard, yeah. 
she her uh, area of interest right now is people's pets. And she says that, you know, humans are experiencers, but human most humans have pets and the pets are also experiencers, but we don't think about that. They're also witnesses. So that's been her area of study for the last couple of years. It's funny because um, I'll have Zoom meetings with some experiencers I know. And so Joy will end up being in my lap a lot of times. And so that's the joke is that, you know, she's the experiencer too. So, yeah. I, I think that, you know, to, that is an area that's not often looked at by by researchers and investigators. And, you know, I think the more people that are aware of that and that start looking into that, that could lead to some answers. Yeah. Uh, and this is, this is part of one of my hypotheses that I've been starting to develop, you know, and I'm not saying this is a unique idea, but it's, it's new to me. And that is that each, each person who is involved in whether it's research, investigating, or experiencing, each of the people that are involved in this big overall conversation has a little piece of the puzzle. And by all of us working together and, and talking about these things, maybe that's how we put together the big picture and we figure out some answers. That's I, why it's important to, to, for people to talk about it. I agree. And, you know, experiencers, you know, regardless of what type they are, they need to talk about it. And that's so hard. I mean, even if your whole family is experiencing or abductees, it's in most cases of people that I've talked to is that it's like they're isolated, you know, nobody talks or you know, and sometimes nobody in the family gets along because, you know, they each think the other person has a better life than they do. You know, they're not going through this. They're not going through that. You know, and unless there's a group event, which did have when I was small, but unless it's something like that, you, you just think you're the odd one out. A lot of people, a lot of experiencers and abductees, they can't deal with it. They can't get the healing. They can't get the therapy they need. And a lot of them end up either going into addictions or suicide. And so I try to encourage them to walk out of the shadows and to get help. Well, and so what I'm getting from what you just said and it's a really important message is that if you're an experiencer, it's important for multiple reasons that you talk about it. And one of those reasons is that it will help you lay down the burden that you're carrying. And another big part of that is that you coming out and talking about it could potentially help save somebody else's life by letting that person know they're not alone and that there is a place, a safe place 
where people will listen to what they have to say, believe them, and help them deal with those issues that come along with those experiences. Does that sound about right? Yes. It's, um, at first, it's kind of like this huge emotional release when you finally share it with somebody. And then it's like the burden starts to lift. You know, I see that a lot. And, um, you know, I, I encourage people who are experiencers on Twitter, you know, to at least DM me. And if they want to share privately, you know, they can share privately. Um, and it really seems to help people to start walking out of the fear and, you know, that kind of thing. But I think that's a good message to end this episode. Uh, unless there's something else that you wanted to say or something that we didn't talk about that you'd like to share. No, I just think you're on the right track on the Cold War. We will have to have another follow-up conversation and talk <laughs> more about that because I could talk about the Cold War for hours on end. Uh, right. I want to respect your time and I've got some other things I got to get to, but um, before you hang up, I'm going to end the recording and <clears throat> have a couple of other questions off the record uh, that I want to talk to you about, but okay. um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come share your experiences with me. And I hope that we agree that this can be made public. Um, but we'll talk about that off the record. Okay, thank you. Thank you.